afternoon and welcome to today's activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. If you have a question for the presenter, please enter it in the Q&A bubble and we will ask at the end of the presentation. If you are in person today, you will receive a SurveyMonkey link after the activity. For those online, your link will be listed in the Zoom chat. And if you are viewing the recorded version, your evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker, Dr. Christine Farag. Dr. Christine is a psychiatry resident at the Carley Foundation Hospital in Illinois. She attended the University of Pennsylvania where she graduated on the Dean's List with a degree in Cognitive Neuroscience. She graduated from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine with professional honors in leadership and honors in psychiatry. After graduating from medical school, she worked for a year and a half in the Tibetan Anonymous region of China where she trained in meditation practices while serving as a physician for the monastery. Dr. Farag has been published in multiple journals, including Neuropsychology, Cognitive Neuropsychology, Neurology, Cerebral Cortex, and the Journal of Complementary and Alternative Medicine. She has presented at several conferences, including the American Academy of Neurology, the Annual Meeting of Society for Neuroscience, the Psychiatry Network Women's Physician Conference, and the International Congress on Integrative Medicine and Health. This past year, she has presented psychiatry grand rounds at over one dozen institutions and also presented a TED Talk on mindfulness. Dr. Christine currently has a YouTube channel where she leads meditation and mindfulness to support mental health. She is also certified in plant-based nutrition from eCornell and a registered yoga teacher. Join me in welcoming Dr. Christine. Thank you so much for that introduction. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, so today I'll be talking about mental wellness through mindful awareness or mindful awareness for medical practice. So what will we be talking about today? We'll be talking about the principles and applications of mindful awareness. We'll discuss the neuroscience and the research behind mindfulness-based practices. We'll begin to cultivate awareness, acceptance, and non-judgment in working with our thoughts, feelings, and sensations. And we'll begin to recognize how mindfulness techniques can allow for a deeper well-being. And at the end, I'll provide methods that can increase our mindfulness in our daily life. So what is mindfulness? So if you look in the dictionary, it's technically the practice of maintaining a non-judgmental state of heightened or complete awareness of one's thoughts, emotions, or experiences on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Creswell, a neuroscientist, describes it as a process of openly attending with awareness to one's present moment experiences. And in the literature, it has multiple uses in medicine, including PTSD, substance use, anxiety and depression, chronic pain, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, and CHF. 
So looking into the history of mindfulness, it goes back all the way 2,500 years ago, and it started with Buddhist Vishpashana. And Vishpashana is actually a Sanskrit term that means insight. So it's a, a technique for developing insight. Um, and it's one specific meditation technique. And that actually was the basis for my training in, in Buddhist Vishpashana meditation, knowing that it was one of the oldest techniques. In the mid 20th century, that's where the formal research into the behavioral, uh, the behavioral outcomes of meditation actually began to be looked into. In the 60s, Eastern philosophy and meditation were popularized in Western culture and it became the boom of transcendental meditation. 1979 was really a great time for the, um, the establishment of meditation in our Western culture and in our medical uh, culture because John Kabat-Zinn brought mindfulness-based stress reduction to the West at UMass. And in the 21st century, we now see mindfulness in healthcare, in education, in research, and in the military. So what is mindfulness, right? Like, what is this term? And it's often associated with many different things. And if you look at this collage here, these are terms that are often associated with mindfulness. And some of these terms include letting go, awareness, patience, acceptance, beginner's mind, loving presence, clarity, inquiry, even humor, self-reliance, and other terms, yoga, CBT, DBT, ACT, mindfulness-based stress reduction, even relaxation, grounding techniques, and concentration, deep breathing, emptying the mind. So there are so many terms that we correlate with mindfulness. So what's the neuroscience behind mindfulness? So mindfulness meditation has been shown in the literature and through Creswell and Tang studies um, to activate a distributed network. It's shown to activate the insula, the putamen, the somatosensory cortex, portions of the anterior cingulate, as well as the prefrontal cortex. It causes structural alterations, including increased gray matter density in the hippocampus, as well as cortical thickening longer term. And we can see these areas highlighted. There's also been shown changes in the actual functional connectivity. So there's been shown an increase in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which we know is associated with our motivation and our executive function, to the default mode network. And it's also been shown to decrease the amygdala, which is you know, our fear base, our emotional stress and learning response to the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the alertness and the selective center. So decrease emotional stress and fear with that affect and selective attention. So one of the earlier meditation studies was done down in Harvard by Dr. Lazar. And Dr. Lazar was actually able to show that meditation increases the size of our brain. It increases the size within the prefrontal cortex as well as the insula. So in this graph, you can see that the cortical thickness of each individual is plotted here. And you can see that it's thicker in those practitioners of insight meditation. 
So we learned from Dr. Lazar's studies that the brain actually remodels based on experience. So if we ask our brain to worry, then it will get better at worrying. If we ask our brain to pause, it'll get better at pausing. So from the research, we've learned that we actually neuroscientifically can change our brains. And in this study by Dr. Judd Brewer at Yale, he was able to show that meditation actually reduces mind wandering. And I had the privilege of actually doing research with Dr. Brewer when I was in medical school. And, you know, it was so interesting to see that meditators were able to have reduced activity in key areas of the default mode network, which includes the medial prefrontal and the posterior cingulate cortices. And this is actually shown to be the area of our brain that's active when our mind is wandering. So those mind wandering regions of the brain, that default mode network, that's less turned on during meditation. And why is it important to have less mind wandering? So in this study by Killingsworth in 2008, he was able to show that we are happiest when our mind is wandering least. Or sorry, we, yeah, we are happiest when our mind is wandering least. So when we're in the moment and we're present, that's when we're happiest. When our mind is wandering, especially to the unpleasant things, especially even to the neutral things, we're much less happy. Now, when our mind is wandering to pleasant thoughts, that's great, but it's still not even, that isn't even correlated with as much happiness as when our mind is not wandering. And the data shows that on average, our minds are wandering 47% of the time. So, so that's a lot of possible time that we could be used to be more happy. And in this study, Wilson 2014, he showed the challenges of the disengaged mind. So the challenges of having a wandering mind. And he found that people would rather, some people would rather have electric shocks than be left alone with a wandering mind. So this just shows why people are motivated to have better control of their thoughts and, and to have, you know, better insight into how to motivate their mind through meditation techniques. And so we've seen a real boom in interest in mindfulness and a real boom in the interest in the actual literature and research behind mindfulness. And the majority of this research has actually been in psychology. This is, this is data from 2016 to 2021. And we've seen 45.2% of the publications of mindfulness in psychology. 21.4% of the of the publications in literature has been in psychiatry. So psychiatry has been um, the second largest modality that's been researching mindfulness. And the third largest group is the neurosciences and neurology with 7.1% of the data. And we see an exponential increase here in the number of publications in mindfulness over time. And initially, most of the literature was based on cross-sectional studies, studying novices versus expert meditators. But now we're really looking into the longitudinal effect of mindfulness. We see various control interventions. So 
the meditators versus various treatment as usual or weightless controls. We've been measuring mindfulness against stress management education, mindfulness versus relaxation training, and even mindfulness versus a health enhancement program, which is an eight-week health education and relaxation program. So what is the mechanism of action of mindfulness? So we've seen, the we've seen the neurological correlates and the neurological basis of mindfulness, but the actual biological correlates of mindfulness in, in this research in 2013 and 2016 have shown an actual decrease in inflammatory marker CRP, a decrease in IL-6 and a decrease in cortisol. So a decrease in our pro-inflammatory signals. We've seen an increase in our anti-inflammatory signals. We've seen it influence the stress response pathway. And this is kind of the buzz. This is what you hear kind of, um, this is more broadly known that it, it can affect the autonomic nervous system and the hypothalamic pituitary access, increasing our parasympathetic response and helping us to regulate that fight or flight sympathetic response. There's even shown to be possible gene expression modulation at the levels of um, at the levels of NFK beta and actual increase in anti-inflammatory signal. And this has been shown decreased inflammation affecting um, causing decreased MRI. MRI activity and the increase in IGF-1 and increase in BDNF has been shown to cause increased gray matter, causing increased cognition and decreased fatigue. So there's actually documented mechanism of action in the literature. And this is more the psychological mechanism of action. Dr. Vago at Harvard has discussed the improved behavioral measures of sustained attention, working memory and problem solving. Um, his particular Harvard literature has shown that it's allowed for a more open and accepting attitude towards experiencing. And he calls this, you know, the metacognitive awareness, which actually helps in emotional regulation. Um, the thought of decentering, which is having an objective third person stance, kind of what we see in therapy, you know, having a, ther a therapist there, an objective um, stance. Well, one can actually have that for themselves and, you know, become their own therapist. A reduction in self reported measures of negative affect, rumination, and less dysfunction and narration. So mindfulness-based stress reduction, which, which I mentioned before, what is that? So this is actually an eight-week meditation training program. And it was one of the first formal training programs developed to help people establish their own mindfulness and meditation practice. And it was developed in 1969, first brought to the University of Massachusetts by John Kabat-Zinn, allowing for weekly classes, daily audio-guided home practice, and even a day-long retreat. And it taught one to apply mindfulness to daily life, including dealing with stress. It was initially geared for treating chronic pain in the 80s, but later it was brought in to show that really meditation is a tool 
to help one cultivate awareness. So this is actually Dr. Lazar at Harvard's um, research into MBSR or mindfulness-based structure reductions effects on the brain. And she was able to show that actually with just eight weeks of MBSR, there's an increase in gray matter concentration in the posterior cingulate cortices, as well as the cerebellum, the temporal parietal junction, the cerebellum, and the brainstem. Meditation has been shown to reduce symptoms of depression, anxiety, pain, and insomnia, all very important in psychiatry. Improved focus, concentration, as well as memory. So let's take a look at this slide, MBSR versus CBT for social anxiety disorder. So this particular study by Golden in 2021, so very recent study, was able to show a similar improvement in social anxiety symptoms for those using MBSR versus CBT. So the actual trial had 108 unmedicated adults with social anxiety disorder who were randomly assigned to MBSR, group CBT, or a wait list. And they were able to find a decrease in negative emotion in both treatment groups, and both produced greater improvements on most measures um, of cognitive reappraisal frequency, self-efficacy, less cognitive distortion, more mindfulness skills, more attention focusing, and rumination. So CBT and mindfulness-based stress reduction may reduce clinical symptoms in patients with social anxiety disorder, and that's through actually enhancing reappraisal and acceptance emotion regulation brain circuitry. They're, they were able to see in the MRI changes um, associated with reduced social anxiety symptoms one year post-CBT, but not one year post-MBSR. And the thought is, so does mindfulness need to be an ongoing practice? Does it need to go beyond that initial eight weeks? Whereas CBT people learn techniques and are they able to utilize them um, in a way that's less regulated as with the MBSR group, whereas one might need to continue doing MBSR longer than eight weeks to see those long-term results. And this is research by Boyd in 2017 showing how mindfulness-based stress reduction is helpful for those or may be helpful for those with PTSD. And we have the symptoms, the hypothesized mechanism, and the actual empirical evidence. So for our intrusion symptoms, the mechanism of action is proposed to be that we shift attention to the present moment reduce attentional bias to trauma stimuli. There's no actual empirical evidence on this, but research is being done. For the avoidance, which is um, associated with PTSD, mindfulness-based stress reduction is thought to increase openness to experience and allow for more willingness to approach fearful stimuli. And there is literature showing that there is reduced avoidance behavior following mindfulness-based interventions. There's alterations in cognition and mood with PTSD. So 
mindfulness-based stress reduction is thought to allow for more non-judgmental acceptance of one's trauma. And there is actually research showing that there's increase in self-compassion driving change in PTSD symptoms, also showing a reduction in self-blame following mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. PTSD is known to show, show alterations in arousal and reactivity with hypervigilance, but mindfulness-based structure reduction is shown to reduce attentional bias to trauma. So one has a greater ability to actually stay in the present moment. And there is empirical evidence showing that non-reactivity and acting with awareness is associated with reduced hyperarousal symptoms. The dissociative symptoms associated with PTSD are thought to be treated by allowing one to connect and remain aware with their somatic sensations, like remaining grounded on the ground, feeling their feet. And this allows them to endure aversive internal experiences. We don't have actual research showing the effects of mindfulness and how that actually helps with dissociation symptoms, but it's thought that these grounding techniques really allow for individuals to remain present. So mindfulness has been used in multiple ways in therapy. So there's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is um, actually at the Beck Institute and it's the Union of Cognitive Therapy and Meditative Principles. There's also mindfulness-based relapse prevention, MBRP, and it's an aftercare program integrating mindfulness practices and principles with cognitive behavioral relapse prevention skills. There's even mindfulness-based therapy for insomnia, which is actually um, an indicated treatment for those individuals who can't take medication. And they're now offered online. Now, what is the dosing and the possible contraindications? So even brief interventions can have benefits. So just five to 10 minutes of guided instruction for three to four sessions is shown to have benefits. And we've seen the benefits of the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program. It's shown to buffer affect reactivity and reduce impulsive behaviors. Now we need larger affect size, to see more intense interventions like MBSR. There are some possible unwanted side effects. So just like in therapy, trauma can resurface, right? And also can be cognitively depleting. So initially there are reports of, you know, exhaustion or disorientation. So anytime someone is experiencing old trauma resurfacing, it can be difficult. So what are the types of mindfulness practices? We have formal meditation, which is kind of this pose that we see here over on, over on the left here, which is time dedicated solely to practice that sitting practice. And in that sitting practice, one can focus their attention on the breath, on sound. And you know, meditation actually doesn't have to just be sitting. We can actually be standing and do a formal meditation practice, even laying down and doing a formal meditation practice. Um, insight, open awareness, and loving kindness and compassion practices. There's also body scan meditations, walking meditations, yoga can be considered a meditation, informal everyday activities, even cooking, washing the dishes, dancing, painting, listening to music. These are can all be forms 
of mindfulness practice. So let's get to the, look into the formal practice of meditation and I'll, I'll guide you a bit through, there, through it because I have had some training in formal mindfulness meditation. So prior to psychiatry residency, I did live in Tibet for 16 months and I was able to stay in a, live in a monastery there where I was working as a physician. So my patients were actually professional meditators. Um, so I was able to actually sit in with them each morning. Um, we were expected to do three hours of meditation in the morning, which initially was almost torture for me. Um, I, I gradually, you know, was able to sit through it. I can't say that I was able to stay mindful during that time, but I, I was able to sit through it. And I did learn, you know, during my 16 months of doing this, you know, more about the practice. So in Tibetan, the word for meditation is gom. And that actually means getting familiar with. And the thought is that in meditation, we're just getting familiar with our mind. We're getting to know our mind, kind of looking at it, examining it, what's going on, you know? So that when thoughts arise, we say, oh, hey, I know that thought. I know that thought pattern. So getting to know what's going on, this introspection. And by practicing meditation, by examining our mind and kind of getting familiar with our mind, we get used to staying present. We get less blown off by the thoughts that are passing by since we're used to those thoughts. Um, and we eventually can become undisturbed by the thoughts if we're so familiar. Oh, that's that old familiar thought that I see. And we're able to kind of stay present and undisturbed as we get used to watching our mind. So we'll have a little meditation, true or false. And I don't know if y'all can um, answer in the chat, um, but if you don't, that's fine. You can just um, think to, your, to yourself, if I am meditating correctly, my mind will be blank. Is that a true or is that false? And I'll give you some time to think about that. All right, if I'm meditating correctly, my mind will be blank. And that's false, okay? So meditation does not mean you have a blank mind. See this, this gentleman over here, no thoughts, no thoughts, no thoughts, trying to push away these thoughts. That's, that's not the practice of mindfulness, right? So in mindfulness, it's all about acceptance. Whatever comes, let it come. And, and it's almost like watching the sky, right? Your mind is like the vast sky. You're just watching, watching them come, watching them go. But it's really about returning your focus every time you're kind of caught by a thought. So a thought will come, you'll get a bit distracted, come back to either that point of focus, whether it be the breath or a flower or a sound, whatever it is. So, so we're not getting rid of our thoughts. We're just getting used to watching them and coming back to our point of focus. So meditation is about learning how to be present with whatever arises in our mind. And it's not that we're completely stoic and nothing affects us, but we bring ourselves back to the present moment. Like, oh, I noticed that thought came and wow, I got really happy. Or I noticed that thought came and wow, I got really upset. You know, so it's like watching the weather pattern. 
and actually this is a this is a picture of my room in Tibet. So literally watching the weather patterns, right? All right, so let's talk about traditional seven-point meditation posture since I, I do have this background in traditional um, Buddhist meditation. So this here was one of my teachers. And so here you'll, in traditional seven-point meditation posture, it starts with the legs or the feet. So one will cross their legs or feet in that traditional posture. One could even just sit in a chair with their feet flat on the ground. So if you're sitting in a chair right now, great. Your hands right on top of the left. This is a mudra, right? Or you can have your palms flat resting on your knees. And if you have the, the thought with this mudra is that this helps with agitation, right? One's back, one, we need our back straight. And the thought with having a straight back is the, the flow of cerebral spinal fluid. And in yogic principles, they talk, talk about channels and they call them nadis areas of our body which are more open and allow our mind and body to be more connected when our back is straight. So we really want a straight back. Shoulders balance, any sort of imbalance in the body can, you know, make our mind a little more imbalanced. So trying to keep our shoulders balanced, our neck straight, right? We're not going to be tilted too far up or too far down. And the tongue up against the palate. And if this is too difficult, that's okay. So the thought behind tongue up against the palate is it helps with salivation. So if you're meditating for a longer period of time or, or if salivation is an issue during a shorter period of time, that's fine, right? Putting the tongue up against the palate can help with that. And keeping one's eyes closed or half closed, really kind of coming inward. Some people with the eyes half closed will you know, focus on you know, the point at the end of their nose. Now, if you have trauma patients, closing their eyes can be triggering. So if you have a trauma patient, you can ask that patient to, you know, focus on a point on the floor. And they say about 45 degree angle from yourself, but a point on the floor is fine. So here a review of seven point posture, eyes closed or half closed, unless, you know, it's traumatic. Number two, the tongue up against the palate, if you can. Your chin, right, neck not too far up or down. Shoulders balanced. Your back straight. Your hands either on your knees or doing a mudra. And your feet either crossed or flat on the floor. And you can see there are a number of different traditional meditation postures. These lotus postures, which you might see in yoga or formal meditation. If you have a stool, you might enjoy sitting in that way or a seiza, you might enjoy sitting on it. And if you've got a chair, that's perfect. Now you can lay flat against, you know, if you wanna lay on the bed and do it, you can do that too. Just know you might fall asleep, right? And some people even practice while standing up and you could do that, um, but that could get tiring. So that's why, you know, sitting on a chair or or sitting in that posture has been the traditional form. So let's actually practice some meditation. Let's make this experiential, okay? So um, I'd like y'all to get comfortable, okay? So please rest your feet 
flat on the ground and keep your spine straight. Don't worry too much about being perfect. Just try to keep it straight. Keep your shoulders relaxed and balanced. Keep your neck straight, your head not tilted up or down. Your hands either resting gently on top of each other or your palms flat on your lap. Don't worry if it's not perfect. Gently close your eyes as if you were sleeping. You don't have to close it too tightly. Now we will practice being aware of the body. Relax the muscles in your body. Relax the muscles in your head, forehead, face, ears, cheeks, jaw, upper body, arms, hands, lower body, legs, and feet. Just relax, yet keep your spine straight. You can make sure that the weight of your head is resting on your neck. Just effortly resting each part of your body on the part below. In this way, you are resting, but with some strength. And you can find some balance. All the parts of your body are resting one on top of the other. At the same time, there is a kind of strength within you and your spine is straight. At times, you feel a bit of gravity. At times, you feel some sensations. Just let it be. Whatever feeling arises in your body, just be aware of it and let it be. Just be aware of your body in this way, joining your mind and your body together. Be aware of any sensations or feelings in your body. Pleasant feelings, maybe even joyful feelings, or maybe unpleasant feelings, tiredness or pain. 
maybe neutral feelings. Maybe there is tingling or no feelings. With whatever feelings you notice, just be aware and let it be for a few seconds. Just be aware, but relaxed. Now we will practice being aware of our surroundings. Now you can expand your awareness outside your body. Be aware of what surrounds you. Maybe there are sounds, smells, or sensations. The feeling of your shoes, the feeling of the chair, the room temperature, maybe a bit hot, maybe a bit cold, maybe noises from another area, some movement or chatter, anything. Just be aware. Just know. Just recognize there is sound. And so your awareness becomes more open and more vast. Stay there. Be aware of any phenomena for a few seconds. Now we will practice awareness of space. You can expand your awareness even further beyond your immediate surroundings. Feel the space around you, above you, and the space further down. All phenomena are occurring in space, changing into space, dissolving back into space. Like clouds, they come into space, remain in space, and dissolve in space. And now you can expand even more your awareness. Go beyond the clouds, space which is boundless, space which is open in all directions, everywhere. Be there. Don't worry, 
you're not going to get lost. Stay there for a few seconds, resting the mind. Rest your mind, not only your body. How do we rest the mind? Think of the way you feel after exercising, maybe jogging or a brisk walk or hiking, a few minutes or even hours. After you finish exercising, you might sit down with a big sigh and just rest. You don't have to meditate. Just let your mind be just as it is and the body also. Just rest for a few seconds. Maybe you feel like there are so many thoughts, so many emotions occurring in my mind. What should I do? with all these emotions and all these thoughts. Same as before, just be aware. If there are thoughts and emotions, just be aware of the thoughts and emotions. Just be aware and let it be. Same as being aware of your body, aware of sounds and sensations, be aware of your thoughts and emotions. Let them come, let them go. Just be aware for a few seconds. You can gently open your eyes when you're ready and be present here. Notice anything occurring in your mind, in your body, in your perceptions. We can practice just being aware and letting it be. And you can do this for a short time. In the morning as a practice, or just throughout the day, in between patients, at the end of your day. You can do this anytime, anywhere, practicing being with your mind, being aware, being present. And there are a number of self-directed mindfulness resources. So many apps are available, a Calm app, I like Insight Timer because it has the sound, though I have a 
a singing bowl here. There's on the app, they have a, a sound that's just like a singing bell. And then you can see how many other people were meditating around the world at the same time as you. There's also Headspace, there's Stop, Breathe, and Think app. Um, so there are a number of apps and there's a, a guide to which meditation app is right for you. And I can send that along um, where you can see, you know, if you've tried it before or, you know, do you want a specific instructor or do you need, you know, certain things. So um, there is there is a guide for finding the right app if you need it. And there are so many books on meditation. Um, so John Kabat-Zinn, you know, founder of MBSR, has so many books, mindfulness meditation for everyday life, mindfulness for beginners, arriving at your own door. Dr. Sharon Salzberg um, has brought Eastern philosophy to the West, as has Jack Kornfield. Um, Pema Chodron, How to Meditate, a fantastic book. Um, so there are so, and then Thich Nhat Hanh, um, you know, a, a very famous uh, meditation master in the East who recently passed has a number of fantastic books. And Mingyur Rinpoche um, also has a number of fantastic books and actually an online program that one could follow. And so some references here. And thank you all for your, for your, for being present here, for your attention. Um, and if there are any questions, I'm happy to take them. Thank you, Dr. Christine. We're going to um, take questions in the room here for just a second, if we have any, and then I will check the Q&A chat. Okay, great. Thank you. Susan has the microphone if anybody has. Any questions from anybody? Question, comments? We have a question here. Uh-huh. Hi, um, I kind of had a question about um, using the singing bowls and what your experience is with, um, I guess, meditation with or without the singing bowls. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question. You know, some people find that sound meditation really helps them to be present, right? Some people really find sound to be an external, an excellent way to kind of bring them into the moment. So um, I, I like sound in the beginning of my practice. Um, I think it can be helpful. Um, if I don't have sound, that's okay. But a singing bowl can be nice, um, you know, and traditionally, traditionally that's used. Um, if you have, you know, some other form or sound that's, that's calming and peaceful, um, what some people do is they'll actually listen to it. And they'll follow their train of thought. They'll follow the sound until the sound ends. So just keep listening until you absolutely can't hear the sound anymore. And there's another way to use the bowl. And they can follow the sound that way. So this could be nice if you were like leading a session with a patient or you know, it can be helpful to have that to kind of ground people in the present. Um, but if you don't have it, some people, you know, you can just focus on your breath or focus on a flower. It's, it's, it's just another tool. I hope, I hope that was helpful. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, any other questions or comments in the room? Oh, Holly's got one too. Hi, um, so do you have advice or recommendations for residents, physicians, nurses, any of our healthcare workers who can implement mindfulness on the go? If they don't have time to sit still for 10 or 15 minutes, are there ways that they can incorporate that into their daily work? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say your breath is such a powerful tool, right? If you're finding, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling overwhelmed, or, you know, I need that pause for myself, you know, that deep inhale all the way into your abdomen and that exhale all the way out. If you can do three of those, fantastic. If you can do five of those, awesome. If you can start your day with a few deep breaths, that's phenomenal. If you can't, that's okay. But just incorporating some time to really just, you know, a fresh breath in and out. And there actually is literature showing those deep inhalations and exhalations and inhaling through the nose can activate the parasympathetic nervous system. In addition, you're bringing your awareness, you know, to your body. Um, and, and it doesn't require any tools or fancy anything. You, you always have that breath. So, so you can always take that, that moment for yourself. I hope that was helpful. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Prasad. Hi, great talk. I just had a quick question. We had a session on biofeedback yesterday and in this world of instant gratification need, how would you compare this to biofeedback? So I don't know enough about biofeedback itself, but from what I've read about it, because I haven't experienced it myself, that's awesome that you were able to experience it. Um, so actually, could you, could you, could you remind me biofeedback, like the, 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 um, you know, the mechanism that that's behind it? Well, I hope Dr. Wickner is online too. He's the one who took the class. Okay. Uh, but basically, the idea is uh, visual imagery, uh -huh. either good or bad. And based on what you're imagining and going through, you can physically see how your pulse and your EEG and your heart rate is going. And then as you calm down, you can see the response on the physiologic uh, vitals. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Okay. So with meditation, with mindfulness, the idea is even as you're watching your thoughts, right? Maybe you'll feel your heart beating. You'll feel it beating faster or slower. You'll feel yourself calming down. You might not have an EEG. You might not have a pulse monitor, but, but being connected to your body um, and sensing and noticing, oh, when I, when I see that image, my heart is racing. Wow, feel my heart racing, right? So, so we don't have that, that actual, you know, that scientific, you know, visualization of, or image in front of us, but um, I guess we become our own monitor in meditation and, and kind of this objective observance of it. Um, I mean, it's not the same, but, but one could monitor their own, their own body um, objectively. I hope that was helpful. Yeah, thank you. 
If you have a question and you are on the Zoom, please enter it into the Q&A um, bubble at the bottom of the screen. I think I saw someone had their hand raised and I'm not sure we can unmute. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. How much, how much does diet, you know what I mean, uh, incorporated into this along with some type of exercise? Because usually Tibetan monks used to do that, you know, more than anything else. Mm, I love that you ask that. Um, my this year, so so I, I've been focusing a, a lot on meditation, but this year I'm actually doing a lot of um, research on nutrition and psychiatry. Um, and I'm actually preparing something for grand rounds in the future doing on nutrition and psychiatry um, and mindfulness. Um, so I haven't done the, the full lit review, but from my experience um, and from, you know, the various retreats I've done and, you know, there are certain retreats where one changes what one eats in order to have, um, you know, perhaps a more amplified meditation experience, right? Purifying the diet in order to more easily connect you know, with the mind, because if, if the body is, is agitated or irritated, it's harder for the mind to be calm, right? It's harder to, to see what's going on in the, in the, you know, the clear view of the mind, right? When our body is, is working on a lot of processes, right? So that's where diet can be helpful. Um, fasting, fasting, some, some, some fasting, but some even just eliminating, you know, there are some, Tibetan monks that won't have onion and won't have garlic. Um, some will. There's a, there's a practice where they say, you know, allow it all and observe it all. But there is a practice where it's easier. It's it can be easier if you eliminate some some types of foods. And and you know, um, the monks the monks themselves, you know, when they there's a certain type of retreat where they do do there are fasting retreats where it's water and i have i have done that actually multiple times and it is much easier for me from my personal experience it's been much easier to meditate with like a day and a half of fasting um but you know that's not for everyone you know and and medically can everyone do that but i think you know having nutritious foods that that support our body and nourish our body without adding um adding toxins makes it easier to, to care for our mind when we're not so busy worrying about our body. I highly recommend a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Uh, if you could write this down, Dr. Eric Berg, B-E-R-G. Okay. He's, he's found in YouTube. Look okay. up Dr. Eric Berg. Uh-huh. It's going to be a new universe for you. All right. All right. Thank you. Okay, it looks like we have a question in the chat here from Dr. Vicknayer. Any recommendations on how to initiate mindfulness with patients um, who have ADHD, especially with their struggle with prolonged attention mm -hmm. and any apps that you could recommend? Mm, okay, so I have patients actually that like the Calm app. Headspace is very popular. I, I had said I like Insight Timer. There's a newer app that I haven't tried that's called Budify. Um, and so, but I have had patients like the Calm app. I think maybe it's an easier app. Um, I, I haven't personally used it, uh, but, but it seems to be quite popular. As for patients with ADHD, um, 
once again, it's, it's really personal, but reminding them that meditation and mindfulness does not have to mean stillness. You know, it could be dancing and movement. It could be jogging. The, their mindfulness practice could be, I'm going to notice my mind while I'm on the treadmill walking or being outside, though, is phenomenal. So walking outside, you know, being in nature, what am I noticing? What am I smelling? What am I, you know, what's in, you know, what am I seeing? Um, so so really incorporating their senses um, because they don't have to sit there and, and you know, be still to practice mindfulness. So if it's easier then for them to be mindful while they're on a walk or while they're in a spin class or while they're dancing or painting or drawing, that's great. Just notice what's going on in my body and mind while I'm doing this activity that I enjoy and just noticing without judgment. Um, and, and that can be helpful, you know, not limiting them to a certain posture. I hope I answered the question. Excellent. Uh, I know just even sitting here for the few minutes, I I have a hard time sitting still. So I'm glad that you that Dr. Vignier asked that question. Mm -hmm. Any other questions or comments for Dr. Christine? All right. Thank you, Dr. Christine. This was a great presentation. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. And best best wishes. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, take care.